I think the, the greatest thing we can do for our own confidence is have some sort of a thoughtful, intentional approach and plan leading up to something that feels important to us. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin, and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. In today's bonus episode, we are flipping the mic on Stephen Dimmitt. Stephen's interview kicks off a mini-series that I'm doing here with fellow podcasters in the space, which will also feature Chris Caloose, Eric Hurst, Chris Hampton, and other voices that your ears will be very familiar with. And I'm going to be peppering in those interviews throughout Season 2, which officially kicks off in about a week, y'all, with none other than Tommy Caldwell. I can't wait for you to hear that. But first, Stephen Dimmitt. You guys, Stephen, as you are, I'm sure, aware, is the host of the Nugget Climbing Podcast, with more than 135 episodes and over a million downloads, the Nugget has become just a super valuable resource for the climbing community. I know that I have personally gained a lot as a listener. I'm sure you all have too. And today, we're putting Stephen in the hot seat as he shares his struggles and his breakthroughs as a climber. And a heck of a climber he is, by the way. V-double-digit boulderer. He's projecting 14A right now on sport. And the guy casually deadlifts 405 pounds. He's strong and he's psyched. He is a genuine dude that is genuinely psyched. And we cover so much in this chat. I really think you're going to enjoy it. So we're approaching the fall season out here at the Red. And for me, that means getting ready to battle the pump. Um, yes, I'm eyeing a 100 foot 13A this season to break into the grade. It's like a million moves long. And I am going to need every advantage that I can in order to slay that beast. And one of those advantages is Fizzy Vantage. It is right there in the name, you guys. Fizzy Vantage is the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. I love this company. I've been a paying customer for years now because their science-backed products just work. Right now, I am relying heavily on Endurex to help level up my endurance. If you guys need help with the pump, you got to try this. You just shake it into some cold water and sip on it on the way to the crag or the gym for proven improvement in power endurance, faster recovery between high-intensity efforts, and it supports optimal blood flow. You guys, it's all natural. It tastes awesome. It is performance enhancing in the best possible way. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-price nutrition order at FizzyVantage.com. Y'all just try it. I'm telling you, I cannot say enough about FizzyVantage. It is truly the best. I'm really proud to share that the official gear sponsor of The Struggle is Petzl. Y'all, I've been using Petzl gear since I learned how to climb trad out west about a decade ago. And they are as rad and reliable as it gets. I am super psyched on their new Sirocco helmet, which goes above and beyond the UIAA and CE helmet standards to give you an extra level of protection on the top and side of the helmet. Why does this matter? Well, when you're climbing at your limit, you want to know that your melon is protected from the unexpected, and that could be a whip or a rockfall and the Sirocco gives you that confidence. It's packed with vents for excellent airflow. If you need a helmet, this is the one. You can check it out at your local gear shop or just pop on over to Petzl.com to experience the difference. And lastly, I'm super proud to say that the struggle is carbon neutral thanks to a partnership with the Hummel Foundation, whose mission is to promote solar energy for a more equitable world. They're doing awesome stuff, you guys. Pop over to HummelFoundation.org to check it out. All right, 
let's get ready for the hunter to become the hunted in this podcast freaky friday with stephen dimmitt up man it's good to see you where are you i kind of expected to see you in the van i'm uh i'm in a co-working space in estes park colorado dude that's fantastic it's sweet there's a kilter board there's a sauna it's like made for me it's crazy are there showers and bathrooms and all showers oh showers bathrooms coffee beer yeah dude oh dude you're it's a big life upgrade i'm actually really excited to (laughs) i'm really excited because uh, are you gonna go back to the van after living this luxurious life for the next two months i I needed a break from the hustle you know like yeah i'm i'm actually i was like feeling kind of burnt out and then i got here and had one session on the mood board yesterday and was like no i'm psyched actually i just needed a break from like the hustle and from driving around trying to find like wi-fi and a bathroom and like hustling to find climbing partners and condies and all that stuff you know yeah man Um, so i think this will be a really nice change of pace just to have like a stable some stability and like routine for a couple months good for you dude that sounds awesome i want that i want that routine (laughs) where are you you're at home i'm in home i'm in my podcasting studio what is what is behind you that green thing yeah, I went to Joanne's Fabrics and got um, a piece of green fabric and a piece of white fabric. And uh, I was gonna say, like, it looks like you made the struggle. Is I that did. The... Yeah, yeah, you I did. did. It's like kind nice. of a struggle logo because we're we're in a utility closet. It's just like unfinished studs and like insulation and then pipes. And so, like, Kara, my wife, is she works from home. She's a writer, and so I just sent her a message three minutes ago, and I said no flushing of the toilet for the next 90 minutes because every (laughs) pipe from the house comes through this room. And so, you know, in the middle of an interview, like it sounds like a waterfall is happening, you know, off camera. And it's just because she decided to flush the toilets. So anyway, a little look behind the curtain here into the utility closet. And let's just dive in, man. Levels look good. And um, I'm psyched to have you here, Stephen. Welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show. Thank you. It's great to be here. The, Good to see you again. The microphones have turned, my friend. The hunter becomes the hunted here. <laughs> How is that for you? Is it um, is it something that you're getting used to? Yeah, yeah. It's it's scary every time. <laughs> uh, it's both. I'm getting used to it, and um, but it still makes me nervous every single time. It's really different to not know exactly to not have the control that I'm used to over the flow of the conversation, but it's been really valuable for me in hosting my own show just to experience what it's like on the other side. I think it's helped me do a better job of um, helping my guests know what to expect because so many of my guests that I talk to are really good rock climbers, but they're not, you know, they're not professionals in the sense that they do interviews all the time. Um, A lot of them, it's their first time being interviewed. And I forget that all the time because I've gotten more comfortable hosting. But, you know, to feel the nerves and to finish a long conversation as the interviewee and then just wonder, like, what the hell did I just say? Did any of that make sense? Like, was right. that good? You know, it's it's really helpful to experience that so I can hopefully make my guests feel more comfortable. That's nice, man. Yeah. You're a hell of a climber and you've been working really hard on it, which I love. I find it incredibly motivating. 
Um, so I want to get nerdy. You have just a wealth of knowledge now from the interviews that you've conducted. So this is really exciting for me. But before we dive in and, and kind of get granular in certain aspects of your climbing and your training, um, let's kind of look big picture for a second here. And I'd love to hear from you um, just what struggle means to you as a climber through that lens of climbing. Yeah, I've been thinking about this question a lot, having listened to your show and knowing that you're going to ask it. And in a way, I think that the struggle that we experience through climbing is kind of what it's all about. You know, in a sense, I think back to my very first experiences with climbing and as much as climbing's about joy and being in tune with nature and, and just the enjoyment of moving on rock, um, I don't think it would have captivated my interest and my curiosity if it wasn't really hard for me from the, from the get-go, you know? Um, Climbing's always been hard for me, and I think that really is a huge part of why I love it so much. And, you know, it's it's an interesting time that we live in where most of us, at least most of us living to this to a great degree, we have a lot of our needs met, you know, like we have food on our table when we want it. We have roofs over our head, hopefully, or vans that we can drive around in and live comfortably in wherever we want to go. And um, I think we find a lot of fulfillment and meaning in our lives by going through struggle, you know, we see this all the time. Like it's, it's always been really fascinating to me that people that, um, that grow up with everything that could ever, that any of us could ever hope for that grow up in wealthy families, you know, trustafarians who have a bunch of money handed to them. Like those are never happy people are very rarely are those the happiest people in our society. And I think that's a real, uh, there's a real insight there that we need some sort of challenge and struggle and, um, opposition in our lives to kind of grow through, you know, to challenge us and to, and to grow. And I think climbing is such a valuable vehicle for growth for, for all of us, you know, like no matter who you are, climbing scales in such a way that all of us are going to fail a lot. All of us are going to be challenged a lot if we're pursuing our own best climbing. And as we get better, that challenge just changes. It's, it's always there. It's the struggle might not look the same for me as it did 15 years ago when I was, you know, getting pumped on my V0 Traverse that I tried, my very first rock climb, but it's still there. It's still there every single time I go climbing. Yeah, I love that perspective, man. I really do think that's what sets climbing apart and above, um, at least what so many of us respond to. Um, and really on this show here, the struggle, what what we've found is incredibly relatable, right? You know, talking with Alex Honnold or Lynn Hill last season and and hearing that they struggle in their training or in their mental game just like I do, just on a totally different level, that scalability, like you said. Um, I love that. So now let's just dive in, man. Let's let's look at Stephen Dimmitt's struggles and breakthroughs. And of course, let's weave in some elements of conversations that you've had on The Nugget over the years here. Um, but let's start by looking at training. And where have you specifically struggled in your training, Stephen? Yeah, if I had to just answer you in a word, the word would be balance. I think the greatest struggle I've had in my own training is just figuring out how much of it and when to integrate it into my climbing. And I've, I've spent a lot of my life as a climber kind of riding this pendulum back and forth between going all in, thinking that, oh, I have this great inspiration, this great idea, this worked, more is better, you know, and just doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on training and pushing my climbing aside or losing sight of the original goal. And, and just training for training's sake. Um, and then 
you know, and then going into a performance season and swinging the other way and just going all in on climbing and losing uh, the long term approach to training. So I, I guess it's just been over time realizing that neither of those feel like the best way. And for me, it's been a process of really embracing a long-term approach. And I guess the word that has, that's helped that I return to time and time again is consistency, like finding a way to train consistently and climb consistently. So combining the two and finding kind of always chasing that kind of minimum effective dose of training. You know, like for me, finger strength has always been uh, a limiting factor for me. I, I started climbing at 18. I was already kind of a muscular guy. I had done some weightlifting. I'd done other sports. So I have some body strength, but finger strength. And I, I'm very like detail oriented. Um, I'm, I have a background as an engineer. I really geek out on tactics and minutia in beta. I'm really good at finding beta that works for me and things like that. And I've, I've spent a lot of time focusing on technique and finger strength's always been a limiting factor. So I've learned that I need to train it all the time, you know, and it doesn't need to take away from my climbing, but if I don't have a little bit of supplemental finger training, when I'm, at least when I'm not climbing in a style that, you know, helps, um, that naturally leads to finger strength gains like climbing in Waco or climbing in Rocky Mountain. I just, I need to be supplementing all the time to make those gains over the long term that are going to be persistent because I've, you know, I've spent entire summers doing like the Mike and Mark Anderson repeaters and just, you know, I'm going to do this for three months and get super duper strong, but you're not really, even when you do that, you're not giving those improvements a chance to get hardwired into your uh, physiology. You know, mm -hmm. it takes a lot. It, it takes months and years for that to happen. So, yeah, I've kind of shifted to a climbing always focus with training supporting that in the background always. You know, that that's kind of the balance that I'm always seeking. And it still swings back and forth a little bit, but the pendulum is a lot more subtle. For instance, like right now, I'm taking a two-month block to focus on, you know, training. I'm using air quotes there. But my training these days, I'm still going to be doing some bouldering in Rocky Mountain National Park and climbing on rock every single week. I'm going to be spending more time on the moon board because that's always been a weakness of mine. And I'm going to be supplementing those things with some weightlifting and the fingerboarding. But the climbing, those two climbing sessions are the focus. And I'm planning everything around those and making sure that I'm fresh and um, rested and focused for those sessions because those feel most important. A common theme that I've heard in in interviewing, you know, the the guests on the show here is that most, if not all, uh, of these athletes predominantly train on rock, it seems like. And, you know, Alex Honnold said, like, I know that if I like if I'm gonna send 515, I need to get stronger fingers, but I also know that to get stronger fingers, I probably have to plan my entire week around some finger strength exercises. And right now I'm just not willing to do that because I want to get out and I want to climb on rock. And for you, this is very individualized, but where you were struggling with balance, what were the things that you've done recently that you feel kind of made the biggest impact on restoring that balance to your training life? You know, I have always focused more and spent more time and invested more energy in rock climbing, being outside climbing on rock than I have with gym climbing or with training. 
if you want to separate those things out. So, you know, I reached a point where I realized I'm I'm struggling to break through physical limitations that I have in trying to reach the next level for myself through only rock climbing. And that's what really led me to train in the first place, but I'm, I made a lot of mistakes just going totally over Stoker into training and, you know, setting aside three months where most of most of what I was doing was hangboarding and training with weights and on the rings and stuff. I wasn't climbing that much. And I, I've since learned that, you know, having more of a balance between continuing to rock climb and not only keep those skills really fresh, but also like learning, you, you kind of unlock new skills as you get stronger and you need to learn how to integrate those new finger strength gains on the hangboard into your rock climbing. So to answer your question more directly, it's been taking a much longer term view of my finger strength, for instance, and not, you know, getting away from like, how strong can I get my fingers in six weeks? And thinking more along the lines of, is there some amount of finger training I can do two or three days a week, every single week, no matter what, that will get my fingers a lot stronger over the next few years without taking away too much from my rock climbing so that I'm just so spent that I can't even go, you know? Yeah, got it. So what does that look like then? What does what your hangboard routine look like these days with more of your focus on climbing outdoors? Yeah, I had an interview with Ned Feely earlier this year talking about his book, Beast Making, and that has had a really strong um, impact on my approach these days. That's that's really what I'm modeling my training approach after is his philosophy and his book. I've tried a lot of things over the years, but you know the, the thing to remember with any training information out there is like a lot of it actually rhymes, you know? It might seem different, it might seem contradictory sometimes, or one person might be saying do repeaters to get your fingers stronger, one person might be saying max hangs. But a lot of that information rhymes, you know, like it's the same principles lay beneath all of it. And if you start to try things enough and experiment, you start to notice like, oh, there's, there's not, there's clearly not one best way. It's really about integrating these principles into my life and climbing and training. Um, so Ned's thing, it's not like it's better than anything else. It just happened to resonate with me when I, when I talked to him and when I read his book and it. I could see how it would fit really well into my lifestyle right now, where I'm living in the van, I'm traveling to climb all year round, but I still want to get my fingers a lot stronger than they are, and that's not happening through rock climbing alone. So I've been doing just three really short kind of max hang oriented finger strength workouts uh, a week, and I do that either in part of my, as part of my strength workout like I right now I'm doing two climbing oriented days a week and then two weightlifting days a week and I might add some hangboarding to every single one of those sessions so maybe four days a week but they're really short 20 minutes you know one day is focusing on a half crimp position one day is focusing on three finger open one day is focusing on full crimps and trying to work my way down on edge size. Mm -hmm. um, that's just what I'm doing right now. You know, it's not because that's the best thing out there. It, I'm choosing this approach because it's what I need um, based on my weaknesses and also my goals. Yeah, that's great. I, I appreciate that look inside. Um, and you've posted some really good videos on your Instagram um, that show some of your training. So anybody who's interested in, in seeing more about what Steven's actually doing pop over to the grams and see that. 
Um, and before we move on, you, you mentioned some limitations, um, like that's what precipitated you wanted to bring in these more frequent hang sessions. And so I'm curious to know what those were. What were your limitations? Yeah, it's, it's, it's more like noticing what my failure points are on different, you know, different projects that I've been trying, whether that's bouldering or sport climbing. There's just, if I kind of zoom out and pay attention to my own climbing over the last handful of years, really always, it's always been, there's been a clear theme that kind of goes through all of that, which is I just get shut down on very basic moves. You know, I get shut down on the types of moves where you just have to grab a crimp and pull really hard and there's no tricks, you know, there's no micro beta. I've already learned like the absolute best way to hold on to the hold based on like the texture and the shape of the hold. There's no way to get, you know, more weight onto your feet. Um, it's the really basic climbing that tends to shut me down. And I've always really struggled with board climbing, you know, moon board, kilter boards, tension board, whatever, spray walls, because you often come up against those really basic types of movements. And I, th I think it's more often than not, it's just a finger strength limitation. Like if the hold were a little better, I'd be able to do the move, but it's really my ability to hold on at all. It's shown up for me in bouldering where, you know, I just hit this ceiling. I just hit a ceiling, whether that's a specific boulder or a grade and just can't really break through. Um, and it's, it always seems to be that very straightforward finger strength oriented style of difficulty that that is the limiting thing that shuts me down you know i might be able to climb like i've been able to climb my hardest of a grade in compression before i can do it in you know straightforward crimps or things like that i can sure. climb harder when i can use you know toe hooks and heel hooks and bicycles and things like that than i can if i'm just straight on and there's there's no options for things like that yeah, well, I'm I'm like 100% with you on that. Uh, my lattice training assessment basically came back that I was just in the bottom, I think it was 10%, maybe bottom 5% of finger strength based on the grade that I could climb. So I don't know, it's simultaneously a little discouraging um, knowing that maybe my genetic potential is on the lower side, but also, I don't know, there's some, there's opportunity there. Um, I think what you're finding too in the long game to just okay, say, look, slow and steady. Let's just continue to build this up while building up everything else. And that's why I love, you know, your point there about just doing a lot of climbing outside, finding that balance. Um, is there anything else, Stephen, before we shift um, onto the next chapter here, anything else in the training chapter that you wanted to cover? Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about with training, because it ties into all this, like I had two bullet points in front of me. One was struggling to find balance. I think another thing that held back my training for a long time, for years, was not eating enough. And I know we're going to get into nutrition and things like that later, but I think I had about a decade where I thought that my body's natural set point of weight or my ideal body weight was a lot lower than I think it actually is now. Like I thought I would perform best at 150 pounds. And now I'm, you know, 165, 170. And I think that's actually a much healthier, um, much more sustainable weight for me. And I've been amazed at how much stronger I've gotten in a heavier body, my fingers, everything. And for a long time, I felt like I was always kind of making these trades back and forth. Like I would get stronger fingers or I'd get stronger in the weight gym at the deadlift or I'd get stronger on steep boulders in the gym 
And then as soon as I shifted my focus to something different, I would lose those gains and trade them for something different. And it, I, I felt like I was never really able to build on what I had trained last summer or last winter. And it was really frustrating because it's just like you you ride this little this little wave upward and then it's like this sine wave. You just dip back down again and then you're chasing the same gains that you've already made over again. And now that I have a higher body weight and set point and I'm eating more, I, I, it just has felt kind of effortless to maintain my strength when I'm not focused on it or maintain my endurance or even my hiking ability. Like that's something I've really noticed in the last few years is I might be in Waco for a couple months and hardly hiking at all. And then, you know, come back to Rocky Mountain after a season and feel really good hiking into the Alpine and doing these long approaches and stuff. And that's kind of a new experience for me. Like that was always, that was always a rough transition before. Well, I love it because, you know, as a fellow podcaster, you know when a good transition needs to happen. And here we are talking about nutrition and shifting to the nutrition chapter. So let's stay focused on that and and now zero in specifically where you have struggled with your nutrition, Stephen. Yeah, I was I was actually listening to your conversation with Jordan Cannon this morning in preparation for doing this. And I loved that conversation with him. I thought that was great. And uh, he said something in there that just really resonated with me very strongly. He was talking about how it's so tempting to uh, compare ourselves to other climbers who have done or are doing the things that we want to do in climbing. And it's really tempting to make this assumption that if I am going to have a chance of doing that, I need to look like this person or that person who's doing the thing I want to do. Jordan talked about comparing himself to Alex Honnold. You know, they're a similar height. Jordan's chasing Alex as far as the climbing that Alex is doing. Jordan wants to do a lot of the same things. And he was just saying, like, I'm just not as lean as him. And that was uh, hard to, to accept, you know, and it's something that he still deals with. And that was, that was my trap for a long time, you know, especially when I transitioned to sport climbing. I spent probably the first five years of my climbing almost exclusively bouldering and never really thought about body composition or weight. I was in my early 20s. I was just eating Subway sandwiches and Snickers bars and trying hard, you know, and that was working for me at the time. But then, you know, I moved to Smith Rock and started sport climbing. And in that environment, I was just surrounded by people that were so much leaner than me. And the type of climber that thrives at Smith Rock tends to be really slight and wiry. And I convinced myself that to succeed at the things I wanted to do at Smith, I had to look like those climbers. Mm. That was really what set me down um, a path that ended up backfiring. I mean, I learned a ton from it, but for people that don't know, I've, I've talked about this a lot on my podcast, but I had a few years where I really struggled with disordered eating and it started with getting way, way too light. I, you know, I'm five foot 10. I got down to 138 pounds and I'm a muscular guy. I just lost a ton of muscle. I was super lean. And, and that, you know, and it, of course it wasn't sustainable. I was trying to continue losing weight even when I was that light. Huh. And then, you know, eventually, um, I never went to the doctor and got my hormones checked, but I really think my hormones tanked and, um, I just started gaining a lot of weight really quickly on the other side of it. And that recovery period was really the hardest part, you know, because I thought everything was fine up until I started having those problems with 
with en- lack of energy and um you know i basically got myself into this situation where my body was holding on to every single calorie and i was either not giving enough to have energy or i was gaining weight those were the only two things and i mean that was i've never been through anything like that you know it was it was really really difficult and it's been a process of letting go of this identity that I had shaped around myself and my climbing at Smith Rock and embracing a new identity in a new body. And ultimately, it's one of the best things that's ever happened to me. There's this massive silver lining of realizing that I had been doing that for much longer than I'd realized, you know? Like I said, I I think I had about a decade where I just thought my fighting weight was, or my natural body weight was a lot lower than it should be. Mm-hmm. I always felt like I gained weight really easily, you know, like I had to be really careful about what I ate or else I'd gain weight super easily. But I, I think in hindsight, I was just suppressing my body's natural set point and just never eating quite enough. And I was always frustrated. I was always frustrated with my training and felt like I wasn't progressing at the rate that I should be, um, given how much energy and thought I was putting into it. Um, and it's been fascinating. I mean, I'm I'm doing a lot of the same things now. In a lot of ways, I'm even less thoughtful about my training and more relaxed with it now. And it's just working better because I'm just giving my body the things it needs. You know, it's 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 just funny. Like in hindsight, it's so obvious, but um, it's such a common trap and so easy to convince yourself that I have to look like this person to climb the thing that I want to climb. Well, thank you for sharing that. How, how did you recognize that? you know, that you were in this spiral in a sense of, of disordered eating. And then, and then how did you ultimately pull out of it and become, you know, a far more healthier version of yourself? I think it was failure, honestly. Hmm. Um, I had been trying a 514 at Smith Rock called Badman. And that was a project for about two years for me. And I don't know, I probably tried it 50 plus times. I'm sure I tried it at least 50 times. Got really close. I one hung it a bunch of times. I got about as close as you could to doing it. But for the last six months of my efforts on that thing, the main strategy I was using to try to level up to do it was losing weight. Mm -hmm. And I got to a point where I got as light as I could possibly get. I was trying to get lighter, but it wasn't working anymore. I just stopped having energy. Um, Because your body your body takes care of you, you know, like your body is smarter than you in a lot of ways. And it knows like, Hey, we, we can't let go of any more of this. We got to hold on and we're going to, we're going to make it a lot harder for you to walk up the stairs. And we're going to make it a lot harder for you to get psyched to hike into the crag and climb until we get some more food in our system. Um, so I, I came up against that and I just, I got as light as I possibly could. And I still didn't send the route and I, I still wasn't strong enough, you mm-hmm. know? And I wasn't improving. I wasn't getting stronger in the weight gym. I wasn't getting stronger in the climbing gym or on the hangboard. I was getting my finger strength. My relative finger strength was improving, of course, because I was getting lighter. So I was able to trick myself for a while that it was it was all working and I was improving. But yeah, I failed on the route and it just kind of hit me like this is not the strategy. Like this, I've exhausted this way. And this isn't going to take me any farther than it's taken me. And I need to find a better way. 
Yeah, man. And you really have. I mean, congratulations. Hell, you posted a video not too long ago of you deadlifting 405 pounds. So I would say that um, the strength is certainly there. And um, it's awesome. You know, you're climbing harder than you've ever climbed as well. So um, congrats, man. That's great. And I really appreciate you you opening up about that. Thank you. Yeah. Again, I mean, I, I want to reiterate what I already said, which is that like, I wouldn't change anything. This has been the greatest gift, actually, to go through all this and to realize that I was sabotaging myself for a long time before it became obvious. And um, yeah, I've actually been blown away at how much better I feel, how much um, how much easier it is to make improvements and strength gains, just having a little bit more muscle and more food on board, you know, eating more protein every day and things like that. But I, I really think, like, I really feel for people with nutrition. I, th I think it's, I think it's the most challenging thing that every single one of us navigates in our lives. Because you know, I've seen this. Like, a lot more people are talking about disordered eating, and I think that's so powerful. But there's often this. Um, I don't think we talk enough about what the other side of that looks like. You know, like, w what I mean is that we've kind of created these stigmas and negative connotations around any kind of nutritional strategy or restriction. But that's not the answer either. You know, like if you're, if you're moving away from disordered eating, the answer is not to go into the grocery store and just let yourself eat anything you want that's in there because our food environment is really fucked up. You know, like there's the grocery store is full of junk food that's literally designed to try to make us eat as much of it as possible. Mm -hmm. And so I think it takes a lot of self-experimentation and a lot of patience to navigate the, the nuance in between and find your own strategy that works for you, you know? And, and for me, that looks like eating mostly whole foods, but also not freaking out if I eat something that's, you know, not on the plan. Um, but but having a really good foundation of eating real food and eating a lot of protein every day. For me, I do really well eating meat. I feel better when I eat meat every day. And that makes it so much easier to navigate everything else. I have a lot less cravings than I used to have. And um, I can I can kind of have an occasional meal out and kick my heels up without feeling the negative impacts of that. Yeah. So then generally speaking, what is your nutritional strategy? So, so giving myself a little bit more of an open framework has been really helpful. Um, and it's interesting, like I, I almost never take advantage of that. I, I feel really content sticking to like a mostly paleo way of eating. But just knowing that I could have a cookie if I wanted to actually is really helpful. Um, but it, it's tough, man. It changes. Like what worked for me last year has shifted a little bit and I'm always kind of in this this flux but yeah mostly paleo uh, for people that aren't familiar it's like mostly meat fruits veggies nuts just whole one ingredient foods like shopping the peripheral of the grocery store you know like the things on the outsides uh, that makes up the bulk of my diet i do eat white rice um, i eat more carbohydrates especially when i'm sport climbing and i've i've brought more in in the last couple of years and that seemed that's seemed to be helpful and yeah that's that's really kind of my, my nutritional foundation. And then again, I, I, I mostly go gluten-free. I, I'm, I feel the best when I go gluten-free. Um, but I'm not celiac. I'm not super sensitive to it. So I don't worry about it too much. If someone, if I go to someone's house and they make something delicious, 
I'm not going to ask them if there's gluten in it, you know? And I think, um, like you said, everyone's really different. A lot of people express themselves with food. You know, food's such a big part of our culture and community. Um, like that's how we bond together as, as people, as friends, you know, we have dinner nights and things like that. And it's really important to be mindful and, and be aware of how important and, and truly um, health-giving those sides of nutrition can be as well. It's not just the micro and macronutrients. It's the experiences that we have around food. It's, it's all of it, which is what makes it so complicated. All right, let's talk about tactics now, Stephen. And that seems to be an area that you like to geek out about. Uh, maybe that's the, the engineering mindset for you, or you've just had a lot of really rich conversations with incredible climbers. But um, let's look at it through your lens and your experience. Where have you struggled with your tactics? Yeah, I think with tactics, it's um, projecting um, and finding my own way. I, I think it's taken a lot of time to really understand and then embrace and lean into the style of projecting that works for me. And it's I say that because it's really different from the mainstream way that we see in all the climbing videos you know like if you watch any climbing video especially sport climbing video that's been made in the last 10 or 15 years it's almost always the same process it's it's some really strong climber fully obsessing and fully beating their head against something really hard for them and seemingly you know it's it's, it's hard to know like what these athletes are actually doing day to day um you know, obviously these are edited videos and it's, it's hard to know, which is why I wanted to start the podcast that I started, but just that beating your head against a project approach and going out and trying it every single climbing day, it's never really worked for me that well. And I've really done a lot better in more of a routine with a project where maybe I'm only trying it twice a week, sometimes only once a week, but really planning my entire week around those really focused efforts and making sure that I'm stacking all the cards in my favor, but also supporting myself on that project by doing some supplemental training or doing some other climbing that's going to fill in the gaps. You know, because it's, it's such a common story where someone tries one project for a few months they get weaker from trying it or they get an injury, they get tweaked from trying the same hard move over and over. Um, at Smith, I was always frustrated with skin, which I think is what led to this approach is that mm. it's really hard to climb on the same project more than twice a week because you're hitting the same hot spots on your skin over and over. But yeah, it's, you know, that, that full immersion process that seems really obvious and enticing just hasn't worked for me that well. So it's taken a lot of time especially living on the road to figure out how to navigate that, how to create some constraints around the projects that I want to do. So I'm not climbing on them too much because I, I tend to just bury myself in a hole. You know, Alex Johnson talked a lot about that um, in my interview with her in season one, she, when she was working on the swarm and just really bashing her head against it over and over and over again. Um, the skin was an issue, but also it was like the hardest move was two moves off the deck and she really got a lot weaker. And she talked about one of the big things that helped her descend when she ultimately did years later was working in uh, a lot more variety out in Bishop and just having some fun, but also working on projects that maybe were similar in style, but just a few grades easier. 
But, you know, for me on the other side, um, as a weekend warrior, I get out maybe four times a month, you know, maybe five um, when the conditions are good and I can find the gap in my work slash family schedule. And so, you know, oftentimes I just like the psych is so high and I also feel a little bit of pressure that maybe I only have so many goes this season on it. Um, so I'm still trying to figure this out myself and would love to hear from you. What What is that balance? Yeah, it, it really changes, I think. It depends on the specific project and what I feel like I need at that area or in that given chapter of my climbing. Uh, but what you said is really interesting. Like if you're going to go out every weekend to the red, you're going to get on your thing. I'm the exact same way. But when you live on the road and you're living in that area for months, you know, I could choose to climb on the project every other day, mm -hmm. the whole time. And that's what I'm talking about, like getting away from that process uh, or that um, full immersion approach, which again, like I, I talk to a lot of climbers on my podcast that do this and it works for them. You know, like I was talking to Dylan Barks last summer and I think he was like, second day on when he sent creature from the black lagoon his second or his first v16 and i think he was only trying that when he did it for like two or three weeks you know just going up there like climb day rest day go back up there rest day sometimes even two on one off mm -hmm. and that is the sort of thing that just like beats me down and um I, i've learned is not the most efficient or productive way to approach a project but there's caveats like in the early stages when you're learning beta on a sport climb i can try it as much as i want to because it's still productive it's it's really when i'm trying to perform at my absolute best and trying to send something that's really hard for me that's when i'm that's when what i'm talking about is more relevant like i need to have more space between days of trying it I need to start bringing in some more volume and be sending like second tier things on my other climbing days just to maintain and build confidence, be clipping some chains or be topping out some other boulders. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that goes a long way too, to filling in those little gaps, you know, like, especially if I'm trying a short boulder, like you're, you're just, you're missing a lot of facets of climbing. If you're trying the same five move boulder over and over, you know? Yeah, man, let's get specific for a second here with a project then. Um, you've been working on this 14A, probably 14B, it sounds like, um, that Joe Kinder put up called Joe Exotic. And that seems like a hell of a project and, and one that you kind of maybe did throw yourself at a, a bit, although I don't, I don't know what you were doing on your off days. So um, yeah, let's, let's kind of look at it tactically through the lens of Joe Exotic for a minute, if, if we can. Yeah, that's, that's a great talking point actually, is to talk about that route. So for people that um, haven't heard me talk about it, I spent all of April in St. George climbing with Joe Kinder and trying a route that he put up called Joe Exotic. Um, either 14A or 14B, we're starting to suspect it might be on the, the 14B side. And yeah, I tried it basically exclusively for five weeks, climbing with Joe, supporting him on his project, just trying it three days a week. You know, like our typical routine was day on, day off for like three rounds. And then we would take a double rest day, maybe do some training on the first of those two rest days. And I I kind of already knew that that way of projecting hadn't worked for me that well in the past, but I wanted to try it. I wanted to just copy Joe for five weeks and just learn as much as I could and and just see how he went about it. And it was really enlightening. And I'm, I'm probably going to almost contradict what I've been talking about because... 
I think in that scenario, it did make a lot of sense. Like I, I had so much to learn on the route that it was really productive to just siege it like that all the way up until my final week there where I felt like finally I had made all the progress I could make. I was just starting to kind of hit a physical limitation or I was just fatigued. You know, I was too tired showing up every day to have a best performance that would allow me to make better links than I had made. You know, like I, I had two hung the route, but going from that to a one hang to ascend in that style, it's super resistant. There's no rest. It's just really punchy. Um, those are, those are big differences, you know, like it's going to take a lot of, uh, specific fitness. It's probably, probably going to take a slightly higher margin on those boulder problems to be able to link all that together. And I just wasn't fresh enough on any given climbing day towards the end of my trip to make any more progress, mm -hmm. you know? So, but it worked really well. I, I don't think I would have changed anything. That full immersion just gave me time on the route to learn it really, really well. And now I can go away for the summer and maybe even for next winter and be a lot more informed about what I need to do, what I need to change about myself as a climber to have a chance to do the thing. But then I suspect when I go back and I'm like really in red point mode, I'll probably drift into more of a strategy like I've been talking about where maybe I go out there on Mondays and Fridays, but then on Wednesday, I'm either climbing some easier routes somewhere else, or I'm going to Moe's Valley and doing some bouldering, or I'm just doing whatever else I feel like I need to support those attempts, um, but not just hammering. And But I don't know. I mean, I watched Joe and like he sent his project and then he sent another project and then he went to Charleston <laughs> and sent another project. And it, it seems to work really well for him. So I think it's really individual. Um, and it might even change from climb to, you know, from climb to climb. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so for you then, the, the point at which is, this is just a general rule, but if I'm understanding what I've heard is the point at which you feel, um, like there's diminishing returns or that it, it benefits you to work in some other types of climbs or styles or quick top outs is the point at which the beta is dialed. Yeah, exactly. Like you're in that final stage of red pointing where you've made, you've made the links, or at least you've made most of the links that you can make before, you know, leading up to sending. You might still have new beta to learn and unlock, but you've really you've really landed on beta that you're happy with. It's working for you. And I guess what it comes down to is just at that stage, I've learned that I need to have a lot more patience than, um, than maybe some other climbers who are able to just put their head down and kind of power through. Like I've, I've never, I've never, I don't think I can think of a single route that I've sent. That's been really hard for me by forcing it, by putting my head down, mind over matter, stay psyched and just, try it every single climbing day until it yields, you know, but I think every person and every project kind of demands its own unique approach. All right, man, let's keep cranking here. I'm loving it. Let's shift to mental game. Where have you struggled in your mental game, Steven? I think my mental game always follows my physical preparation. You know, I think mental game is such an important element of our climbing, and a lot of people talk about it being a third of what makes up our performance, um, you know, mental game technique and physical strength. I've heard those by so many people be kind of equated as equal pieces, 
And I, I think that's true. But for me, my mental game has just always followed my physical preparation. You know, I've never been able to send something that I was struggling with by convincing myself that I was more confident than I, than I actually was just based on how my climbing was going, you know, like I've achieved confidence by really thoughtful preparation and then taking the steps to improve through training and then showing up to the climb ready, you know, um, or by climbing a lot outside and by sending a lot of things that are sub-maximal and building that pyramid and just feeling really confident in my climbing. I, I guess I've put a lot of energy into mental game almost in a vacuum, like trying to focus on it on its own, thinking that it's going to be this great key to unlock harder sends and things like that. But for me, I've noticed that's never really worked. Like it's always it always exists in tandem with my physical preparation. And if I take the time to, to make a plan and to have a thoughtful approach, then it's almost like I don't need to worry about it. You know, I'll have the confidence. Um, I'll have the desire. Like I never have to worry about trying hard if I show up to a route that I really want to do. You know, the try hard will come because I just desire so much to do the climb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that's a different answer than a lot of people probably give you. But um, I was thinking about that a lot leading into this conversation. And I think that feels really true to me is that it's it's always, it just follows. It follows the physical stuff. Yeah. I think it's really interesting, man. And, and you mentioned confidence there. Uh, and I'm wondering how conscious you are of that confidence level. And are there any strategies that you implement not really. I mean, I've I've tried to, and it just hasn't worked very well. Like I've tried other strategies, um, you know, certain methods of self-talk to try to talk myself into greater confidence. And it, it just feels like for me, at least in my climbing, it just comes down to I'm either ready or I'm not, you know, I'm either prepared or I'm not. And the confidence is just naturally there when I've it's it's like anything. I feel a lot more confident going into a podcast interview if I've taken the time to prepare and I feel really ready. You know, I feel like I'm sketchy and and kind of nervous and winging it if I didn't give myself enough time to look over my notes or learn about the person. You know, it's it's like a job interview or anything else. You know, I I think the the greatest thing we can do for our own confidence is have some sort of a thoughtful, intentional approach and plan leading up to something that feels important to us. That's a nugget right there, Stephen. Hope so. Yeah, I'm going to wrap that thing up with a bow and stick it at the top of this episode. Uh, And I like that. You know, I think everybody brings their own perspective on the mental game chapter here. In season one, um, all of these athletes had different relationships with the mental game, their fears, fear of failure, fear of falling, and... Uh, You just put it really succinctly there for you, what works is just being hella prepared. And if you've got the physical preparation dialed, then that confidence is there. I like that. And I think a lot of us uh, can benefit from that as well. Um, But I do want to hear some other aspects. Uh, And fear continues to be a theme in this chapter. I wrestled for a long time with fear of falling and continue to work on it, but it's, it's less of an issue now. A lot of the pros wrestled with fear of failure. So let's just crack that shell open for a second. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, I think that's a spectrum, but I think it's, I think it's a part of every single climber's experience. I think it's always there. And anytime I take time away from sport climbing and go bouldering for a while, 
it feels a little weird to be run out above your bolt, you know? And every time I switch rock type and I go from, I don't know, from Smith Rock to Slippery Limestone where it's harder to trust smears and things like that, you know, that, yeah, that I, I, I struggle with that just like anyone else. And I, I think I would go back to the same, the same sort of answer that I had before where I just know now that I have to take steps to rebuild the comfort and the confidence and it happens quicker i think the more times you do it you know it happens quicker each time like i can get back to feeling really comfortable above my bolt a lot quicker than i could 10 years ago because i've gone through that process a lot of times but i still i have to expose myself to it you know i have to do some some moderately hard routes before i can do a really difficult spicy route you know and feel confident on it but it's just it's like going back into a training cycle you know like you can't just or you shouldn't rather try to just jump right in there where you left off and try to make prs on the first day you know you have to take a few steps back and kind of rebuild yeah you know you you really do have like a nice long lens um of of your climbing and for your climbing it's a little bit different than me like i guess maybe because i'm a little bit older i'm like I don't build a pyramid, I build a skyscraper and um, I tend to want to look for, you know, I guess a shortcuts isn't the right word um, because I'm willing to put in the time, but I, I'm looking for um, the most efficient or fastest path from point A to point B. And I, I like, you know, I really like your perspective here, kind of that longer gain, incremental improvement will get you to where you want to go. And and that, that brings up goal setting for me. And you know, you're kind of, you seem to be like a list person and an organized person. It's your engineering background or, you know, I've seen just like in your van, you've got your, like your whiteboard there with goals and projects and that kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, I'd like to understand a little bit more about how you look at setting goals, you know, maybe short-term and long-term. You're correct. I guess I'll start with that. Like I, I am definitely a list person. I'm very motivated by checking things off a list. And I think my mind just naturally is fairly systematic. Like that's, that's how, you know, it's very natural for me to break things down into their parts and kind of work through each step. Um, but I've, I've noticed a lot, like for a long time, my goal with climbing was just to get a lot better than I was, you know? And of course, like it's easy to, to have a number, a grade as a goal, 514. And then, you know, as I got closer to 14A, I was like, well, maybe my goal should be 14D, 9A, you know, and then like that's such a big audacious goal that I, I would, of course, like reach 14A, you know, and probably beyond. But in having all these conversations on the nugget, I've noticed time and time again, a lot of the top climbers that I talk to, they they get a lot more granular with their goals and they become obsessed with really specific things that they're trying to do. And I've I've learned in the last couple of years that it's really helpful to have a lot more specific inspiration, you know, finding a climb that is attainable that you really, really want to do that's motivating enough to plan a whole trip around it or plan a whole training season around it and not worrying about that goal being like the perfect guiding light to improve in everything that you want to improve at as a climber, you know, you can take one of these things at a time. And if you work hard at something that's hard for you and improve and do it, you're going to hold on to a lot of, of what you've gained through that process. And then you can pick the next goal and maybe it's slightly different and maybe it will help you work on slightly different things. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess to, to answer my 
last few years, I've really been trying to take long goals that I have, break them down into smaller goals that are a lot more tangible because, you know, as humans, like we're, we're pretty terrible at taking a long view and thinking about the future. It's why it's so hard to like invest money in a 401k and things like that. Right. It's, you know, it's like we're alive today. We're alive right now. And it's, it's hard to really believe that we're going to be older someday and we're going to want to cash out our 401k when we're 62 and retire off of it or whatever it is. Um, so, so having goals for this season that are specific climbs I want to do, I already have specific goals for Waco this winter. And I know not only which climbs are inspiring to me that I want to do, but how those are going to serve me really well and my desire to grow as a climber. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been really powerful for me. Yeah. I think that's really important, especially the specific routes, because you can then train with those in mind, right? You can set simulations like I do, like in my little, you know, kind of spray wall or, you know, you're just working towards um, a very specific rad climb that you're psyched on and running beta in your head for, you know, every night when your head hits the pillow. Um, And then also just this concept of having things roll up into the bigger hole. Hazel Finlay talked a lot about that in our um, expert analysis episode at the end of season one here, um, where she talks a lot about process mindset. And, you know, maybe it's not about hitting a specific grade, but it's about getting better on slopers. And if your goal is to say, I want to get better on slopers, and you pick a route that's got a, you know, really tough sloper crux to it, whether you tick the route or not, right, you you are going to get better at slopers. And so the um, the win there, or maybe what's more um, beneficial than the tick mark, at least in Hazel's uh, opinion, and she's one of the foremost experts on this kind of thing, is that whether the route goes or not, you can still wrap up that season or that trip and say, hell yeah, I'm better at slopers because of that project. Yeah, it's really freeing too, because it's so easy to get overwhelmed by the amount of things we could be working on, you know, but we don't have to do it all now. You can focus, You like the best progress I've made in my climbing at different chapters has always come from a high degree of focus on something very specific, you know, like two winters of climbing on my home wall in my garage, preparing for a trip to Bishop, and I knew exactly which climbs I was going to go try. You know, so I wasn't setting replicas, but I was I was designing all of my bouldering around body tension, small crimps, sharp holds, stretched out moves, you know, this kind of balance of of uh, dynamic precision, like dead pointing without my feet coming off, things like that. Mm-hmm. I did I did that for two months and then had the best trip I've ever had, you know, in my life. Went to Bishop for a week and, and had, um, you know, sent all the things I had hoped to and more. So... It's, it's okay to let go of some of the things you could be doing in the name of focus, because you can always focus on something different later. All right, man, rounding the corner into our final chapter here, and that is on purpose. We get to fully shift our sights towards Stephen Dimmitt now, and not Stephen Dimmitt, the rock climber, but uh, the podcaster, the van lifer, Whatever it is you want to talk about, what are you psyched on and what's bringing you a lot of purpose beyond your own personal fight with gravity? I think it's connection. You know, I've, 
I have this amazing opportunity to connect with a lot of people and share their stories. And um, at first, I started the podcast from a place of just desiring to know what people were actually doing. I was trying to make sense of all this information on the internet and seemingly conflicting information. I just wanted to know what are all these amazing climbers actually doing? And, you know, now two and a half years into this project and having over 120 episodes published, I'm still as interested in training as ever, but I have a lot fewer burning questions about what people are doing, how they're, you know, how they're structuring their bouldering sessions on rock or whatever it is. And I've become a lot more interested in sharing people's stories. And I think that I've just, at least for me, I'll just speak for myself, but hearing individual stories has had such a profound and powerful ability to help me break down mental assumptions and biases and uh, beliefs that I didn't even realize I was holding on to. Mm -hmm. You know, like you, you think a certain way about a certain group of people, and then you hear some individual open up about their lived experience, and it totally breaks down those barriers. And it shows you that this person's just like me, you know? And if I were handed their deck of cards, I'd be the same, you know, I'd be, I'd be living the exact same life that they are. And, and that I think, whether we're talking about, no matter what we're talking about, whether we're talking about race or neurodiversity or sexual orientation or anything, um, just hearing that humanizing experience of hearing an individual talk about their life and their story is, I, I think, the, the most powerful way that I've encountered to just open people up. It just cracks people's hearts open, you know? It has for me. And did that come as a surprise to you? Like, you know, initially launching a podcast, talking to climbers about climbing, your rock climbing heroes, that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, it's a far deeper, more human connection that you're finding. Has that shifted the way that you book your guests or just just the way that you interview people and, and publish your episodes in general? Yeah, I think so. I mean... I think I've always been interested in that. I don't think I was a, as aware of it, but I was I was asking a lot of personal questions even in my earliest interviews because it was interesting to me. But I've been consistently amazed and surprised at the responses to episodes that I don't expect people to take interest in, you know, because maybe they're further away from performance climbing and or they're they're really really niche or specific. Um but man, any any time someone is willing to open up about their lived experience and share a different perspective than, you know, kind of the norm, the typical, people love it. They connect with it. And I, I get amazing feedback every time that happens. And I, I really enjoy it. You know, it always is really, um, it always gives me a lot to have those conversations and I always feel really grateful for it. It's really been a goal of mine from the beginning to bring mentorship to hungry and curious people like me through, through climbing. But so much of what people have to share and pass on has nothing to do with climbing. You know, it's just about life, but, but because it's about life, it's also about climbing. Well, I enjoy the hell out of it, man. You know, I'm a patron, been a patron for a long time, and um, I like the balance that you've been able to strike between performance climbing as well as just 
you know, the personal side, the humanity of, of climbers um, and just humans in, in general. So love it, excited to hear more and just see where the nugget goes. But also, um, you know, here at The Struggle, we like to kind of look back at the end of a season as we did after season one and, and see what what patterns, what common threads can be um, gleaned from, uh, in our case, at least these 10 elite climbers and where they've struggled in various areas of their climbing and training. And so for you, you've got an even longer lens, 120 plus episodes now. And so I have to ask, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here. Um, what stands out? Yeah, I, th I, I have thought about this a lot. I've been asked this and I have an answer actually. Like, I think there's one thing above all else that really has stood out to me through all these conversations. And it's going to sound so obvious that it's, it almost doesn't seem worth saying, but it's also somewhat profound. It's just that every high performing climber I talk to has a very climbing first approach to their climbing. Mm -hmm. Like these people are obsessed with climbing. They climb all the time and they're not overcomplicating it by adding a lot of other stuff. You know, like a lot of them train, a lot of them do some hangboarding. The people with the strongest fingers that I talk to, they train their fingers a lot. They're obsessed with getting stronger fingers and that's why they have some really strong fingers. But, you know, talking to a lot of coaches, I think it's e easy to get wrapped up too much in the theory and to get sucked down these um, these kind of rabbit holes that don't really serve us as rock climbers, you know, like I haven't met anyone who has deadlifted their way to 514. But the one thing that all of them do is they prioritize their climbing all the time, year round, you know, even when they're in a training cycle, maybe that just means they're moonboarding a lot. Mm -hmm. they're, they're climbing in a more strength power oriented style if that's what they want to work on. Um, but I, I think it's just so... It's just so tempting to overcomplicate things with all this information. I, I think we just lose sight of how simple the approach can be, you know, um, spending more time doing hard bouldering, spending more time focusing specifically on the types of climbing that we are weakest at or want to improve at or are most relevant to our goals or all of the above, you know? Yeah, it is kind of profound, just the simplicity of training on rock. And, and I saw that too. Um, listeners will recognize from season one, whether it was Alex Honnold or Emily Harrington or Drew Mack, you know, these, these climbers often talked about training on rock. And if they needed to work on power, they would get on some crimpy boulder problems or sport routes. And if they needed to work on endurance, they would do just a bunch of longer submaximal stuff and then backfilling with training. And so... Um, yeah, that, that's come through clear on, on my end as well. And for those of us who are weekend warriors and maybe can't get out as much, we do simulate some stuff at the home wall or at the gym. But the more we can get out, the better. And um, I think that there's probably no advice that's better than that. So, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I love the nugget. Love listening to it. Love being a patron. And am super excited to see where you take it this year. I appreciate it, man. It's it's the most fun I've ever had doing anything. I had no idea if anyone else would be interested, and it's just such a gift that it's resonating and connecting with people and that I get to keep doing it. Yeah, man. Well, keep it up. 
We all love the show, and um, I also personally just want to thank you because you've been um, super supportive of my show. And, I mean, you helped me get it off the ground. Uh, you've had me as a guest on your show, and I just I love that about the rock climbing community. You know, we're all here to lift each other up um, and, and provide as much support and stoke as we can. Um, so thank you for, for helping me here at the Struggle Climbing Show. And, man, um, let's do this again. It was a lot of fun talking with you. Well, thank you, Ryan. I, I appreciate that a lot. And I could say all the same things to you. I really enjoy what, you, what you're doing with the struggle. I'm excited to see where it goes. And that wraps up our chat with Mr. The Nugget himself, Stephen Dimmitt. What do you all think? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at The Nugget Climbing, at Stephen Dimmitt, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. I thought it was really fun to just interview Steven under the struggle format here. He is a super strong climber. He's very insightful uh, with his training. And of course, he just has endless stoke for the sport and for the community. He's just one of the most genuinely nice people I've had the pleasure of working with and calling a friend. So I encourage you all to connect with him, support his show, and just spread the word to all your peeps. Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Guys, grab yourself some Endurex if you want to train harder or you want to keep that pump at bay on your long sport projects like I'm going to be tackling here at The Red. It's incredible stuff. Fizzy Vantage is now available in Europe from the Epic TV online shop. And in the US, Fizzy Vantage is available at select gyms and of course at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And y'all, remember to look for the Sirocco helmet by Petzl when you pop by your local gear shop. It's the best of the best when it comes to protecting your noggin, going above and beyond the standards for top and side protection. Experience the difference with Petzl gear. Experience the difference with Petzl gear. Well, that clips the anchors on this episode. And if you're still listening right now, I think we're friends. And so I just, can I chat with you for a second as a friend? It would be super rad if you could help me out with a couple of things here, friend. First one, super easy. Just rate the podcast on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen. Five stars would be cool if you think this show doesn't suck. And um, if you're listening on Apple, then maybe write a little review if you could. It just really helps to get the podcast out there. And I'm working my harness off to bring good content. So um, a friendly rate and review would be super appreciated. I'll also send you a sticker just for doing it. All you have to do is share that review on Instagram and tag at The Struggle Climbing Show, and I'll slide into your DMs and get that cool sticker out to you. Second thing is, um, I'd just love for you to consider becoming a patron for the show. Um, just swing by patreon.com slash The Struggle Climbing Show and check it out for the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap beer you can come aboard as a patron, which will give you access to ad-free episodes, pro clinics conducted by our elite athletes. I'm super excited about releasing those coming up here. And um, some really sweet swag, like our limited edition travel mug slash can koozie. All of that can be yours for the price of a cheap beer every month. Plus, you'd be helping me and the climbers who make this show to put food on the table and chalk in our bags. And I hope that makes you feel good. So yeah, swing over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check that out. All right, I'm your host, Ryan Devlin, and this show was produced by myself and Mary Mathis. The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. Let's climb hard and do good things in the world. See you next week.